right. Good morning, everybody. That was good. That was good. Getting better, getting warmer. It's not as cold, so everyone's a little bit happier. No freezing uh, windshields. Um, I told you guys a couple weeks ago, I, I had to do the, you know, the water hose thing to break the ice off, but I have this weird supposedly special hose and it keeps the pressure in it, so the second I dropped it, it's shooting everywhere. I was like, I got to be at church in a few minutes. So it's a rough start, but it went out okay. All right, so today we make a big turn because we are at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. We are not at the conclusion of the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be here still for, for quite some time in the Gospel of Matthew, but we are at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And as a reminder, the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest sermon ever given by the greatest teacher. And today, Jesus is going to close it with a parable. And what we are meant to do is picture the sum total of the Sermon on the Mount, everything that we've been going over now for a few months, we're supposed to have that in our mind as we read this concluding parable. So what I'd like to do in order to do that appropriately is kind of do a lightning round review of the different elements in this Sermon on the Mount so that they could be at the front of your mind, so that you have them there as we read the closing parable that's meant to sort of be the, the capstone of this. Okay. We began the Sermon on the Mount weeks ago now with the Beatitudes, where Jesus flips everything upside down. Up is down, down is up, left is right, right is left. Because Jesus says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who are persecuted. And what he's doing is redefining what the blessed life looks like. He's flipping it upside down. And then Jesus says his followers ought to be salt and light. This is incredibly important because oftentimes in the modern world, being a salt and light type of person is an idiomatic phrase. It means something akin to be a nice person, try to be nice. And I'm not knocking trying to be a nice person, but the images of salt and light in their biblical context are about much more than just being a nice person. They are about living in such a way that people observe your actions and in turn look upward to God. And the idea was this, that God's people would be instruments by which people from every tribe, tongue, and nation would come to know the one true living God. After that, Jesus says he, this is remarkable, he says that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He looks back at the Old Testament, the Torah, and he says, all of that stuff, it's about me, and I'm here to fulfill it all. Then Jesus transitions to his ethical teachings about anger, reconciliation, lust, divorce, and much more. For anger, he goes farther, he goes further than the law did. The law said, you shouldn't murder. And Jesus says, well, fine, well enough, don't murder. But more than that, don't even have anger in your heart. He takes what the law says and goes beyond it. He talks about reconciliation. He says that how you relate to people in the horizontal has a direct effect on your vertical relationship with God. He says, you can't just come to, to God and worship in the vertical and relate to him like this when you have broken relationships in the horizontal. If you've wronged somebody, before you go and do the vertical, go to those you've wronged and seek reconciliation and forgiveness. Talks about lust, divorce, and adultery. And he says, the law condemned adultery, fine, fair enough, but I'm telling you, you better deal with lust in your heart. And the idea behind that is this, is that Adultery is the full-blown growth 
of a weed that's grown huge in your yard, but it started at one point as a seed. And so Jesus says, before the weeds take over your yard, before there's too many that you can count and they've ruined everything, you have to deal with it at the start. So the same seed that grows just a little is the same seed of lust that can grow into full-blown adultery. So you better take care of that. You better take care of it right away. He goes on and says his followers shouldn't be people that have to take oaths. Their yes should be yes and their no be no. They are to be a turning of the cheek type of people, loving their enemy type of people, going the extra mile with an enemy type of people. And when they give to the needy, they should do it in secret. They shouldn't let the world know like the hypocrites do anytime they do something good. He gives us the Lord's Prayer, which we've committed to memorization. He says, don't fast like the hypocrites do. And then a very challenging week, he reminds people of where their treasure ought to be. And then he says, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. You can't do it. Which should like strike at the heart of our culture, right? You cannot serve both God and money. You can't do it. Impossible. It's hard hitting. He goes on and teaches us not to be anxious. Why? Because we have a good heavenly father who cares for us and is for us, not against us. And because of that, we should seek first his kingdom. He warns us not to never judge, but to be careful how we judge because the measure by which we judge others will be the same measure that we're judged with. Reminds us to go to the heavenly father who is good and knows what we need even before we ask. He teaches us the golden rule and that there's trees that bear good fruit and bad fruit and warns us of false teachers and false believers. And lastly, he concludes and wraps all of this up with this parable of the wise and the foolish man. Before we look at that, a couple notes. When you look at the Sermon on the Mount, you have to understand that Jesus is inviting you into a new way to be human. And I'm not saying that in some exaggerated or rhetorical sense. Like, Jesus is asking you to adopt a different type of humanity. See, from the beginning, humanity has been stuck in sin and cycles of sin. Like, violence begets violence. Hatred begets hatred. Lust grows into adultery. And we see these patterns in our own individual lives. And even more than that, the cycles of sin can run throughout generations. Some of you know this. It's like, you know, I was told that by my dad that my, my grandfather had an anger problem. And you know what? My dad had an anger problem. And you know what? I still have an anger problem. And it's like, it's not just on individuals, but it's, it's in family structures. Like there's these cycles of sin and people are enslaved to them. Violence begets violence, hatred to hatred, lust to lust. And what Jesus is saying is like, you don't have to live like that. You don't have to live like that. There's a different way how to live, a different reality to step into, a new way to be human, the way God designed you to be, the way you were, the way you were forever meant to live. And so he invites us into that. And the Sermon on the Mount is this incredible vision of what humanity ought to look like, how we ought to behave. Now, you need to know that it's not only Christians who admire the Sermon on the Mount. Non-Christians look at the Sermon on the Mount and see it as like the, the, the pinnacle of ethical and moral teaching. P- 
people who aren't even Christian, they go, this vision of humanity is so wonderful. It's so beautiful. And people look at it and admire it. And at this point, for both the Christian and non-Christian, there's a temptation that occurs. What sometimes happens is we begin to admire the Sermon on the Mount from a distance. But the Sermon on the Mount was not given to be admired from a distance. It was given to be obeyed. Like you're not supposed to look at it and go, this is a wonderful vision of humanity. It was not given to be admired from a distance. It was given to be obeyed. We're supposed to do it. And when we started the Sermon on the Mount, I told you that there's roughly a few dozen different major interpretation streams when you approach the Sermon on the Mount. And many of them, most of them, all try to wiggle out of the clear ethical teachings of Jesus. They try to wiggle out of it. And so um, some, some interpretation streams would say something like, Sermon on the Mount is awesome, uh, but it was given primarily to the first century Jews who were hearing it. Or it was given to the first century Christians, the first audience. It was like the apostolic age of the church. Or some people push it way out further and say, this is for heavenly living or living in the millennial reign of Christ. And there's all these different ways at which we look at the Sermon on the Mount and it's clear moral and ethical teachings and just say, nah, that's great. But we don't, you know, God doesn't really expect us to obey all of that. You know, that's too hard. I don't want to love my enemies. I want to knock them out, man. And what Jesus does at this point is he refuses to allow us the wiggle out. He says, you're not getting out of this. And he closes the Sermon on the Mount with this parable. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Now, uh, if you've been coming to this church for quite some time, you know that we, we really care about not just teaching the Bible, but going deep with the Bible. Like on an average Sunday, you're going to hear some Greek words, some Hebrew, some theological point. Like that's super important to us. It's a part of our DNA. However, even though Scripture, like the depths are immeasurable, you can keep going deeper and deeper and never reach the bottom. Some stuff is pretty straightforward. And you're just supposed to hear it and do it. And that's what Jesus is getting at in this parable. You've heard everything I've said. A wise man listens. They don't just, and they don't just listen and hear. They actually do it. They obey. So to hear it and do it. It's pretty straightforward. There's an author and pastor by the name of Francis Chan, and uh, he gives this, it's kind of like a, it's a little bit, it's like a joke, it's almost like a little stand-up comedy run that he does, but essentially he asks the audience to picture a dad with a teenage son, and the, the dad tells the teenage son, listen up, I want you to go to your room, and you are to clean your room, make your bed, and then take out the trash. Clean your room, make your bed, take out the trash. And the son goes, okay, dad. He goes to his room and he comes out a few hours later and he says, dad, I did something awesome. I memorized what you told me. I memorized it. Listen, listen, dad, clean your room, make your bed and take out the trash. I memorized it. 
Okay, and the dad goes, well, yeah, but did you do it? And before he could even finish the sentence, the son goes, well, I got some even better. Now I'm going to believe this. this is awesome, dad. Tonight, I've invited friends over and we're going to sit in a circle and we are all going to study your words together. We're going to study, clean your room, make your bed, and take out the trash. And dad, we're going to look at it in Greek and Hebrew, and we're going to translate it and parse it and get to like the deep meanings of it. Yes, yeah, son, but did you? And again, the interruption. Dad, we, we, it's, it's so great. We're learning so much. And the dad goes, did you do what I said? And then the son says, father, I made my bed in my heart. I made it in my heart. And you guys get it, right? You get the point, right? So you know we care about teaching the scriptures. But you also have to know some stuff is pretty straightforward and you're supposed to hear it and then do it. You're supposed to obey. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat up that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Now Jesus is going to go on and tell us the opposite type of reaction. And this is a similar pattern of Jesus. He, he creates um, like two paths, two gates, two roads, two masters. And it's like you have to choose this way or that way. And so he's told us what the wise man does, and now he's going to tell us what the foolish man does. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now, as we usually do, a little Greek. Uh, that last phrase, and great was the fall of it, the word great here is megas. That's where we think of mega. And the reason why I'm telling you that is the image you're supposed to get is one of mega collapse, mega destruction. This isn't just like some floods came and a window got broke. Great was the fall of it. It's mega destruction, mega collapse. Many of you are familiar with this because there's a, um, a kid's song if you grew up in the church world. You church folk, long-term church folk, know it. There's a song that teaches the kids, you know, the wise man built his house upon the rock. You know it. Some of you don't. It's fine. That's great that we have this song to teach kids, but uh, the image when you actually dive into it is not necessarily like, kid-friendly. I'm not saying the song is wrong. It's a great song. We should learn. But um, it's a great destruction. This whole house comes collapsing down. I mean, this is this, this man's livelihood. It's everything, and it comes collapsing down. And furthermore, you, if you follow the image, you should be thinking of utter devastation. When it's raining outside and you're hanging out in your backyard, where do you go? Into your house. This image is of, of, of people in a house, and the floods come, and destruction occurs. Likely death occurs. It's this great, powerful image that says, if you don't follow my teachings, this is what it's like. Now, there's another layer to this. Um, one of the issues that we run into when we look at biblical imagery and metaphors is we can also immediately import them into our own context. And sometimes that works fine, but sometimes it could be a little misleading in what we picture. So for this image, Jesus talks about building your house on the sand. And if you 
picture that. Where do you picture this dude building his house? The beach. Even when I was a little kid, you picture, man, he built his house by the beach because that's where all the sand is at. Which conceptually isn't a bad, a bad thing. It's not wrong to want to live by the beach. Like, you're not going, oh man, that guy's so foolish, he wanted to live at the beach. It's like, I want to live at the beach. Who wants to live at the beach? I do. It'd be great. It'd be awesome. It's fantastic. So what you picture is like, man, this guy, he was foolish. He should have just, like, he could have moved 50 yards away from the waves. And then that's where the sand ends, and he could have had a nice beach house. But he was so dumb and foolish, he built it too close to the water where the sand was. Because you're picturing sand, you picture the beach. <clears throat> now, Jesus is giving this sermon in northern Galilee. You need to know that Israel's geography is not like ours. It's not wrong that we picture the beach. We're from California, and if you go over that hill, you run into the beach. But Israel is roughly 60% desert. And it's not, for the most part, sandy desert. It's very rocky. You see how there's nothing growing? It's because it's pretty much rock everywhere. It's very hard to grow anything. Now, there are sand dunes in Israel um, in certain locations, and maybe Jesus was picturing sand dunes, and that's certainly possible. Or he might have just picturing sand in general. But I, I think there's something more going on here because there is a place in Israel where you also find sand. Uh, and that is in these areas. And this looks like a riverbed, right? But it's not a riverbed. This is what you'd call a wadi. And it's different from a riverbed in that a river is where there's typically a river and maybe there wasn't enough water that year and the river dries up. But you know that next winter more rains will come and hopefully the river will start to flow again. A wadi is not a dried up river. A wadi is the place where the flash floods run. And so in environments like this and in Israel, you have a very rocky terrain. And when the water comes down, it's not easily absorbed. And so what will happen is it'll collect from all these different areas and then begin to, to come to a certain space and then follow the path of least resistance. And with that path of least resistance, where it flows down is this flash flood zone, which creates the wadi. And the wadi is the place where you have a sand-like terrain. Now, what's crazy is oftentimes you could be in, in a uh, location near a wadi and um, you see clouds in the sky and you know it's going to rain. You, you read the forecast and, it's, you know, there might be some water that flows through here, so I, I just better be careful. Don't set up a picnic table in the wadi. But sometimes you could look around and there's not a cloud in the sky. Blue skies everywhere. And you may not know, but miles and miles away, rains are coming down. And they're not draining because the surface there is rocky as well. And miles and miles away, there's some storm. In your area, it's the desert. It's hot, not a cloud in the sky. And out of nowhere, that wadi can fill up with water. And sometimes it's kind of a little, little stream like this. And then sometimes it brings utter destruction. A flash flood can do incredible damage. It's very, very powerful. There's a quick video um, from a guy who, who filmed this. This is an area in, in the United States where there was a flash flood. But you could see the wadi, how there's sand there. It looks like this dried up. What I want to do is just show you what this looks like because you're going to see 
how powerful this thing could be. It's not just a little bit of water that's coming. It collects rocks and twigs and tree trunks and uproots plants, and it brings it all down. And it happens, and it flows right in the wadi bed. Okay. So, Jesus says, don't build your house where the sand's at. And he says that to people in northern Galilee. They all know where there's sand. They might be thinking about far-off sand dunes, but in my mind, most likely, they're picturing a wadi. And so the image changes, right? Because when it's the, the guy who wanted to, to build his house by the beach, but he just got a little too close, it's like, man, it was a good idea, but you blew it. Do you see how now the, the image functions? What is the most ridiculous place you could possibly build your house in this region? The most foolish, ridiculous place to build your house would be in the sand because there may not be floodwaters right now, but with certainty, with absolute certainty, the floods will come down that path. And you know they'll come down that path because you can see it. And that's where the foolish man decides to build his house in the most ridiculous place imaginable. The other reason why I think this is is most likely what's occurring. It says, and the rain fell and the floods came. This word for floods, potomos in Greek. Uh, all the other times in the New Testament is translated river or stream. It's the rains come and then the river comes. And the wind and the rain, and you saw all the stuff that piles up into it, slams against the house and great was the destruction. Absolute destruction. So Jesus says, if you don't, hear my words. If, if you hear my words and you don't do them, you are like the person who builds their house in the wadi, and great will the destruction be. So when you or we as a culture disregard the teachings of Jesus, we disobey to our own ruin. We disobey to our own demise. It is not as if the teachings and the law of God are some oppressive set of rules that take away life and meaning and fun and purpose. God gives you his law so that you may flourish. When human beings live out the law of God, humanity flourishes. When we disregard that and we disobey, we do so to our own ruin, to our own demise. Now, there's a concept that's important here, and we've talked about this once or twice before, and it has to do with the wrath of God. The wrath of God has two components to it, or two sides. There's the active wrath and the passive wrath of God. The active wrath of God is where something wicked is done and punishment immediately comes by divine intervention by the hand of God. So picture um, Pharaoh and the Egyptians are wicked and they enslave God's people and then God brings a plague. And they don't listen, they continue on in their wickedness, then God brings another plague. So there's punishment and consequence and plague coming in response to some disobedience. <clears throat> but God brings that. It's active, like the active judgment of God. But there's also a passive judgment or passive wrath of God. And that is when the consequence to the behavior is embedded in the behavior itself. Or another way, the punishment of the behavior is embedded in the behavior itself. So think of substance abuse. You start doing some, some substance and you start doing it more and more and pretty soon you want it more and more. And pretty soon you're addicted to it. 
And then pretty soon you see that it's changing you and it's making you a different person and you don't like it. And you don't want to do this substance anymore because it changes you and makes you to become a person you don't like, but you're enslaved to it. And every time you try to stop doing it and, and break free, you end up doing it more and more. And pretty soon you're not the person you ever wanted to be and you can't even get out of it. Because the, the consequence, the punishment of that behavior is embedded in the actual behavior. Or think about someone who's greedy. They're always wanting something more. They're never satisfied. Happens if you're greedy, you, you collect more and more, and then you realize you're still not happy. So what do you have to do? You have to acquire more and more. And the more you acquire, the more you realize there's so many things that you don't have, and you become more discontent and unsatisfied. And all you do is put yourself in this cycle where you're, you're a slave to acquiring more and more and more, and all it's doing is making you more and more happy. The punishment, the consequence, is embedded in the behavior. Or let's say, let's say you grew up, you're pretty insecure, and you got a job, and you're pretty good at it, you're pretty successful, and you begin to like, climb the corporate ladder at this place of employment, and it feels good. Like you're growing, it's feeling great, and you learn that if you work harder, you work more hours, that you'll continue to climb the corporate ladder. And so what happens is you work harder, you work more hours, all the while you're neglecting your wife and kids. But you keep doing it, keep doing it, and you're telling yourself you're providing a better future for the kids, and you keep doing it, but now your relationship with your children is starting to become fractured. And you do this for two decades to the point where the kids basically reflect on dad, and they go, dad loves work more than he does us. And so in your desire to have success, to make you feel like a person of competence, you've lost your children. The punishment of that behavior is embedded and inside the action. Now, that's relevant for this image, right? Because Jesus doesn't give us an image where a foolish man builds a house on the sand and God looks down from heaven and is like, Man, that man's so foolish. Let me teach him a real good lesson. Storm. It's not an active thing. It's he built his house in the sand. And sooner or later, whether anyone likes it or not, it's going to rain. Storms come. So the, the structure itself is doomed because of the foundation. Now, we do this when we disregard the teachings of Jesus. When we disregard the teachings of Jesus, we do so to our own ruin, to our own demise, to the own collapsing of our structure, collapsing of the house. So when you, when you live in a way that disregards the teachings of Jesus, sooner or later the storm comes and takes you out. So take lust for an example. You don't deal with that seed that seed of lust will grow and grow and grow and it'll become more powerful, stronger than you ever thought. And you see people do things to ruin their marriage that they never thought they would be able to do. They never thought they would go that far or do that. And they do things that they swore to God in a covenant before witnesses that they would never do because they didn't take care of the seed. They let it grow and they built it in the sand. And pick your poison. It could apply to anything. If you don't deal with it, sooner or later, the structure collapses. Now, this doesn't just happen on an individual level, although it certainly does. It happens in greater circles, like think about families or organizations or think about something as large as a whole culture. 
What happens when a whole culture disregards the teachings of Jesus? When they look at the teachings of Jesus and say, nah, we're not, we're not, we're not down for that anymore. We're not doing that. They do so at their own ruin. They do it to their own demise. God's laws are good. They're for human flourishing. They make better societies. But if you disregard them and say nothing, nah, we're not doing that. You're, you're destining yourself to ruin and to destruction and to demise. And what you are seeing today unfold before your eyes is a whole culture disregard the teachings of Jesus. And they do so to its own ruin. So what happens when a culture saturates themselves in violence, in, in lust? I mean, Christians included, we allow ourselves to watch entertainment that the first Christians would not believe someone who bears the name of Christ watches, but we do it and justify it and say, well, it's pretty entertaining. When you saturate yourself in lustful images, in violence, when you don't care about the last, the lost, and the least of them, when you're greedy, when you try to serve the God of money, when you, when you disregard lifelong commitments, when you say monogamy is not that important, when you just break away from all those support beams that Jesus gave you, what do you think will happen? We're seeing it unfold before our eyes. And so if you're like me, you look around at the world and you, you're really good at like diagnosing everything that's wrong, Right? Man, this is wrong. This is wrong. Man, this is what's wrong with our culture. This is what's wrong with our people. This, this, is, this institution is bad. This is what's wrong. And it's everywhere. Like, I'm not denying that. There's a thousand different problems. And you could say, one of the biggest problems is, is this system, the education, it's politics, it's media, it's mainstream media, it's social media. You point everywhere and look, there is a thousand different external manifestations of what's wrong, right? But here's the thing. Beneath those external manifestations of what's wrong is spiritual rot. It's spiritual rot. It's a disregard of the teachings of Jesus. And when you disregard the teachings of Jesus, it will manifest in some way. And here is the problem. You built on a bad foundation, and now your support beams are rotting. And it's only a matter of time before those rotted support beams, support beams can't support the structure and it will collapse. And the only hope an individual has, a family has, a culture has, is to run back to Jesus, his teachings, repent, ask for forgiveness, and say, Lord, I want to follow your law because it's good and wise, and it's for my flourishing. And when people, individuals, large groups, cultures do not do that, they do it to their own ruin. And it will only be a matter of time before the storms come and take out the structure. And so, Jesus ends this great big Sermon on the Mount with this super simple image. There's the wise man and the foolish man. What do you want to be? Do you want to hear my words and disobey? I hope you don't, because it'll be a great, great fall. There'll be much destruction and pain with that. And some of you know that from past times in your life, right? You might have been a Christian. You knew what God would have of you and you disobeyed? And how did that story go? It didn't, it, it, it never ends, it's like, it's so simple. It's, it's one of those things where it's like, we, you know when you know better but you still do it? It's like, God's, it's, 
clear. Don't do X, Y, Z. And you do it and it comes back to haunt you. So Jesus says, don't do this. Build your house upon the rock. Build your house upon the rock. Hear my words and do them. Now it ends with this. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. However, whatever Jesus is doing, people are saying there's, there's something powerful about this. There's some type of unique authority. And you can see that, right? Jesus is saying things like, you have heard it said, but I tell you. He's saying things like, well, in the law it said this, but I'm going to go further than that. I'm going beyond what the law said. Now, one of the things that was common in Jesus' day and then the subsequent two to three hundred years afterwards was that many Jewish rabbis would look at the Old Testament and they'd have a teaching on it. And then another rabbi would quote a previous rabbi and they would discuss their, their similar opinions or differences. And then there'd be another rabbi who would look back at the two discussions between these rabbis and they would discuss in dialogue and debate. And a lot of those, those discussions and debates and dialogues were collected in the documents known as the Mishnah and the Talmud. Now, that's great. I wish that our culture would would debate and dialogue and, and wrestle with the scriptures more. But here's the thing. All of those people would merely quote other teachers or quote other interpretations or say, I agree with this part or I disagree with this part. But none of them claim the type of authority of Jesus. So the closest thing we have in the modern world to something like this is, is the academic world. Uh, if you've been in the academic world, you've, you've, got a, you've got a master's degree, you had to write a master's dissertation, or you, went, you got a doctoral dissertation, you had to write a big, giant paper. And when, what you do in these, these things is you, you read everything on your topic so that like, you know what everyone said, and then you discuss what everyone said. And you, 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 every time you talk about what someone said, what do you do? You have to cite it the bibliography, the work cited. And what you're doing is you're quoting and citing everyone, all the experts on the topic, and then you're gonna add your own contribution to the work that was before you. And by the end of it, you have like 500 in, uh, columns in your work cited or your bibliography. Because you got, you, you know, truth be told, you could be a violent criminal in the academic world and have a wonderful academic career, but you don't quote, you don't make your work cited right, your bibliography, they take you out, man. They take you out. So you cite and you dialogue and you debate and all of that is, that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. But what does Jesus do? He doesn't quote anybody. No work cited. No bibliography. I will make comment on the Old Testament how I will. I don't need anyone other uh, interpretation. I don't need to quote anybody else. And the only person who could do that is, is like someone who's insane or someone who is claiming some type of authority that is different than everyone else. Remember, this is the Old Testament. This is the Word of God. Jesus is looking at the Word of God and giving you its proper interpretation and in many cases going further than it, saying this is actually what this pointed to, but it didn't go far enough, and I'm here to tell you what the Word of God's intended goal was. And this is Matthew's way of telling you something about this Jesus. This is Matthew slowly kind of taking up the veil and saying, Jesus can do this with the Old Testament 
because he himself is the author. He doesn't have to quote. He doesn't have to cite. He can tell you what it actually means because it means what he wanted it to. Jesus is the author. Matthew is telling you in a very Jewish way, this is the God of Israel in the flesh. This is not just a normal human being. This is the God of Israel in the flesh. He is the author of the Old Testament. And that should make you ask a couple more questions. It's, first off, okay, who is this man? Well, this man is more than a man. He's one who has authority as of God. And then what would this person, if they do have this authority and their God, what would they have of us? What would they have of me? And what is he actually like? And so what would this one with authority have of you? He would have you listen to his words in the Sermon on the Mount and do them. Build your house on the rock. That's what he wants of you to be a Sermon on the Mount people, to hear his word and then do it. And then furthermore, the other question that arises is, well, what exactly is this God like that gives us this law? Because in one sense, if you're rebellious at heart, which many of you probably are, like me, you're going like, what? wait, so this teacher gets to come down and give us this impossible law. Like, no one wants to do this stuff. I don't want to love my enemy. I want to knock them out. There's all these rules, caring for this person, being loving and forgiving. Wait, you say, we, we have to do all of that, and you just come down from heaven and, and dump that upon us? And it's like, no, that's not what this God is like. Because what you see through the rest of the Gospel of Matthew is not just that Jesus is the teacher who gives the law, but then Jesus is the one who embodies the Sermon on the Mount, the law of God, perfectly. He doesn't just give it to you and then live hypocritically in some other way. He embodies the Sermon on the Mount perfectly. So what do you see in the life of Jesus? Does he pray like the hypocrites? No. The gospel writers want you to know that Jesus wakes up early and then goes off while it's still dark to be alone to pray with his heavenly Father. He doesn't need the world to see his praying. When he's fast, he goes into the wilderness. He doesn't need to, to show, look at my prayers, look how, how much I fast, look how great I am. Jesus has the burdens and the weight of ministry. He knows what's ahead of him. But is he anxious? Or does he say, I trust my good heavenly Father? I trust him. Tomorrow has its own worries. And you see the patterns of the Sermon on the Mount manifest in the life of Jesus and ultimately they culminate in the pinnacle, which is the crucifixion. Because Jesus is betrayed by a friend, right? Judas. And when he's betrayed to a horrible, horrific death, what does Jesus tell Judas? Do what you have to do, friend. Do what you have to do, friend. Doesn't curse him. Doesn't call down judgment. Do what you have to do. And then Jesus is handed over and as he's being beaten and flogged, does he curse his enemies? You see no curse of enemy. You see no hatred in his heart. You see him suffer righteously. And then he doesn't walk the extra mile with the Roman soldier. He walks the mile where he himself carries his own cross up the mountain to Calvary. And when he gets there, he's nailed to the cross. And as he's suffering agony, what are his words? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he suffers righteously until his last breath and with the last bit of air in his lungs, what does he say? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I still trust you. 
And in Jesus, you see the perfect embodiment of the Sermon on the Mount. And if you look carefully to what Matthew is doing with his story, you can see that Jesus now is on a mountain, on Golgotha, on Calvary, and he's hanging on a cross. And now you see the light of the world. Remember the city on the hill with the light that cannot be hidden? It's there for the world to see outside of the city walls, Jesus, the Son of God, the innocent one, shining brighter than anyone else has ever done. And all who would want mercy, grace, and forgiveness, have to, all they have to do is run to him to find safety, security, and salvation. The light of the world, the city on the hill, the light that can't be hidden. See, Jesus would give the Sermon on the Mount on a mountain in northern Galilee, but he would embody the Sermon on the Mount on a different mountain. Calvary, Golgotha. He didn't just give you the law. He embodies it perfectly and is faithful to the very end. And it tells you something about the God you worship. It tells you something about God. He's not an angry deity in the sky just trying to give you rules and laws. He's the loving, wise, good, heavenly Father who sends his Son to give you his law and to give you the solid example and embodiment of that. And then in turn, this is how we ought to live. And this is where it sort of all connects, is that we then in turn look to the example of Jesus and emulate that to the best of our ability. Sermon on the Mount is difficult. You're not going to do it perfectly. You're not God. You're not Jesus. But you don't say, ah, man, that's a lot of hard stuff, man. You strive to emulate your Lord, to be like him. And when you do so, you become a Sermon on the Mount people, a kingdom people. And what's the whole point of that? Remember salt and light? You become a Sermon on the Mount people with the hope that people see you and see the light inside of you and in turn may glorify your Father in heaven. And the hope is that God's people would do this in such a way that the whole world would take notice, that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation would come to know the one true and living God. It's good to follow the law of God. It's for your benefit and it's for your flourishing. But if you do not, Heed the warning. You might have not had the storm come yet, but it will. And when the rains come, the floods come, and the wind. And if you built your house in the sand, great will the collapse be. Let's stand as we prepare ourselves for communion. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he takes bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. Take this and remember. And so today, Lord, we remember your body broken on our behalf. What type of God do we worship? A God who lays down his life, comes in the flesh, his body broken on our behalf. So even though we fall and fail and falter, there's grace and mercy and forgiveness and a good father who always welcomes us back to his table. Let's remember the death of Jesus. Jesus takes the cup. This is the blood of the new covenant. And so as always, we say we, we want to pledge our allegiance to King Jesus.
We live between the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus and his return. And in that interim period, we want to do our best to follow him. We pledge our allegiance to him. We want to be a Sermon on the Mount people. So let us commit to being this type of people. And in hope and in prayer, by doing so, we might draw people to our Heavenly Father, and by His Spirit, He might save them. And so, Father, as we close, we pray that this time would be honoring to Your Son, Jesus, that His name would be exalted, that You convict us where our lives may be out of line with the Sermon on the Mount. We give You thanks for where You've grown us. You've sanctified us. I know that if we went around in the room, people can say, I used to be so angry, and God has made me less angry. I used to struggle with this sin, and and I've grown in this. So, Lord, we want to give you thanks for the areas of growth, and then we, we want to ask you for assistance in areas where we might be falling behind. We know you are faithful and true, and you who begun a good work in us are faithful to complete it, Lord. May you be honored in our closing time together. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.